good. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I would first like to acknowledge that we are gathered today on the traditional ancestral and ceded territory of the Musqueam people. And I want to thank Professor Shige Matsui, Director for the Center for Japanese Research here at UBC, for inviting me to speak to Professor Tristan Grinnell for arranging everything today. And I didn't meet, is, is Jiki here? Or uh, Suyun? Okay, but I wanted to thank them for all the work they did behind the scenes too. And special thanks to the Japanese consulate in Vancouver and Consul General Asako Kai, who recommended me for this uh, part of your program to begin with. So I am Sherry Kajiwara, the director curator of the Nikkei National Museum, which is the only professional museum in Canada dedicated to honor, preserve, and share Japanese culture and Japanese Canadian history and heritage for a better Canada. So Japanese immigration to Canada is officially recorded as beginning in 1877. The 65 years since then and the forced expulsion of anyone of Japanese ancestry from the west coast of British Columbia in 1942 is a time of complexity. Our ancestors came from Japan, established themselves, succeeded in almost everything they focused on, fought for Canada in the First World War and lost everything in the politics of racism leading up to and exercised through the Second World War. Since I am a museum curator and not a historian, rather than just give you an academic dissertation on the history and hardship of Japanese immigrants to Canada, I am going to offer you a public program perspective of this history. I will illustrate how the Nikkei National Museum curates this contested history in unique ways to educate the general public through examples of recent museum exhibits. I'll introduce some current publications directly related to this complex history, and I'll end with an overview of my museum's particip participation in SHRC-funded academic research projects that have both pushed our capacity and enabled exciting new collaborations and initiatives bridging the gap between academia, history, and public dissemination of important research related to my community's history. If time permits, I will share exciting upcoming projects through the Virtual Museum of Canada that I'm working on and a Yonsei Gosei photography initiative titled The Suitcase Project that's coming up this summer. So to start, don't worry, there is history in this. A brief timeline, very brief timeline of Japanese immigration to Canada. So 1877, the first officially recognized immigrant from Japan to Canada is Manzo Nagano. He lived 1855 to 1923, if you're curious. He arrives in Westminster, which was the downtown of Vancouver at the time. Now there is some debate documented by Victoria-based historians Gordon and Anne Lee Switzer, who feel there is strong evidence of earlier migration from Japan into Victoria. Their book, Sakura in Stone, Victoria's Japanese Legacy, which was first published in English in 2015 and translated to Japanese in 2017, offers their research perspective. But Nagano was officially recognized by the Japanese Canadian community in 1977, which celebrated 100 years of Japanese in Canada. So while the Switzer argument is compelling, it's not definitive, so the debate does continue. 
1883, Tomokichi Homma, who was born in Japan in 1865, and he sadly passed away in an internment camp in 1945. He comes to Canada in 1883 at the age of 18. He finds work in Steveston, BC, a community near the mouth of the Fraser River where many Japanese took part in the fishing industry. Homa became a leading member of the Japanese Fishermen's Benevolence Society that included building a Japanese fisherman's hospital amongst its many projects. And he started a Japanese language daily newspaper called the Kanada Shimpo. I'm not sure if it's related at all to the current Shimpo, but he started the first one. In 1889, the first official Japanese consulate opens in Vancouver. We are here today as part of the Meiji 150 commemorations, but in 2014, for the 125th anniversary of the Japanese consulate in Vancouver, Consul General Seiji Okada at the time researched in depth in both the Japanese government archives in Tokyo and the Nikkei archives at my museum, and has given contemporary interpretation to this history. He's continued to work on a book about it, but you can read his essay in... Um, our museum's Nikkei images. This is the actual volume, which is um, summer 2014, volume 19, number two. Sadly, this is my last physical copy, but you can access it free online. You can download a PDF. Just go to the Nikkei Museum website. I've left cards at the back of the room, too, if anyone's curious. And go under Research, and you'll see a drop-down table for drop-down tab for Nikkei images, and look up um, volume 19, and you can read the entire narration. Uh, and then in 1900, back to Tomekichi Homma. This is where it gets really interesting. Here is someone who immigrates to Canada from Japan, who has been working hard for 17 years to establish himself and contribute to Canadian society, naturalized in 1896, and then in 1900 goes to his local polling station to register to vote and is denied. This starts a campaign to win the vote for Japanese Canadians. Using his own savings, he carries the fight all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, which ruled in his favor. But in 1903, the matter was referred to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London, in the UK, which was then the ultimate court of appeal. The Privy Council ruled that the British North America Act gave the provinces exclusive jurisdiction over civil rights, including the right to vote. So British Columbia had the power to exclude Asian Canadians from the franchise. Now, Japanese Canadians had been denied the vote to denied the vote in British Columbia since 1895, when a clause in the provincial elections barred Chinese Canadians from voting and was amended to include Japanese Canadians. This clause, which denied rights to Canadian citizens on the basis of race, also kept them from the federal vote, which was determined based on the provincial voters' lists. So a lot of this has to do with the rising levels of racism, which existed right from the early days of immigration. In 1907, um, anti-Asian sentiments in Vancouver erupt into the race riots that begin at Vancouver City Hall, demanding a white Canada rampages through Chinatown and then ends up on Powell Street. So this image on the very left is um, Manzo Nagano and his family. He actually did establish himself um, 
quite well in Victoria. Oh, that's the error message. Yeah. Four hours, okay. I have you for four hours. The uh, image on your left is Tomekichi Homa and his family. And the house is the very first residence, the very first Japanese consulate in Vancouver. And that was located um, on Dunsmuir at the foot near, near the, what was then water, actually. Um, it's quite an amazing shot. So a little bit more of the history timeline. In 1908, in an effort to protect Japanese in Canada, the Gentlemen's Agreement, or more specifically, the Hayashi Lemieux Agreement, is negotiated between Japan and England, capping immigration from Japan to Canada to 400 and allowing families to immigrate. Thus begins the age of the Japanese-Canadian picture bride. Now, unfortunately, racism continues to rise in Canada, and in 1928, immigration from Japan is further reduced to 150. So it's not on my timeline slide, but it's important to note that beginning in early 1916, that's 1916, over 200 Japanese-Canadian recruits began military training in Vancouver. This is for the First World War. But because of racism in BC, the original recruits had to disband and re-enlist individually in Alberta, which they did. These men went on to fight in the Canadian Expeditionary Forces, participating in the major battles of the First World War. Fifty-five were killed or died of their wounds, and only six came home uninjured. Letters from the front describe the exemplary and fearless fighting of Japanese Canadians, who won 13 medals for bravery. There are infamous stories of the Fighting 10th Battalion that included the largest number of Japanese Canadians who helped take Vimy, which was a formative moment of national identity for this country. But despite proven, loyal, proven loyalty to Canada, the veterans who did survive and return home, unlike their white counterparts, were not given property nor the right to vote. They did continue to fight for franchise, which they won finally in BC in 1931, but only for surviving veterans and not their families. And all of that was taken away again in 1942. By 1919, 3,267 Japanese Canadians owned fishing licenses, which was nearly half of the total number of licenses in BC. But by 1925, 1,000 of those were stripped from them. In 1936, a second generation, uh, or Nisei, group called the Japanese Canadian Citizens League, the JCCL, goes directly to Ottawa to try to gain the federal franchise. I had said earlier they were denied in BC. While the JCCL delegation was permitted to speak to the Special Committee on Elections and Franchise Acts, BC-based politicians at Parliament managed to persuade the committee to uphold denial of franchise. So between 1940 and 1946, everyone of Japanese ancestry, 16 years and older, cooperates with a federally imposed registration system. And there are different colors of registration cards if you were a Japanese national, naturalized Canadian, or Canadian born. Now, of course, the pivotal year, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor, is the event that shatters our world as we know it. January 8, 9, 1942, a conference is held in Ottawa called The Japanese Problem. 
And then in 1942, January 14, Japanese men are declared enemy aliens. There's a notice on the right side, which is on display at the Maritime Museum right now in their Lost Fleet exhibit. Um, the February 19, 1942, Order and Council PC 1486 defines the 100-mile exclusion zone, leading to the forced dispersal of over 22,000 uh, Canadians of Japanese ancestry from the west coast of BC. So that's a really, really brief timeline. If you look up our website, and again under research, you can see a much more um, nuanced timeline on our website. And of course, there's many, many books written uh, on the history by scholars far more um, intelligent than myself. Again, I'm a curator, so I'm going to show you how the Nikkei National Museum curates this contested history in unique ways to educate the general public through examples of recent Nikkei National Museum exhibits. I'll just explain though, the picture on the left is the famous anti-Asian race riot photo. That is actually in your UBC collection. And that is a storefront on Powell Street. It's really interesting how these photos were taken of really tragic times and people are smiling. If you look closely, there's a, a woman in the shop doorway smiling at the camera holding a little baby. And there is a South Asian fellow off to the far right. Um, so it is a really interesting snapshot of the environment and the climate that existed down there. But again, this, the draw of the camera, the need to smile for the camera is really intriguing to me. In the middle is a picture bride. Uh, it's from our archives at the museum, and um, Kinori Oki was 18 at the time that that photo was taken. So, as I said, we are dedicated to honor, preserve, and share Japanese culture and Japanese-Canadian history and heritage for a better Canada. And we aspire to educate the general public on the complex history of those of Japanese ancestry in Canada through the lens of curatorial projects, exhibits, and programs. So I'm just going to talk about three that we've done. So the first is about picture brides. It was called Arrival, Japanese-Canadian Picture Brides from June 11 to September, four, uh, September 4th, a couple of years ago. And we featured artist Chino Otsuka, who uh, was a finalist for the coveted Amia AGO Photography Prize. Uh, it's an international prize that's awarded in Canada. Chino is a Japanese artist currently living in England. And she, as part of the prize, you were awarded a residency at any institution you wanted, and she chose the Nikkei National Museum. She conducted her research in 2014, and through her exploration of our archives, she discovered the early history of Japanese immigrants to Canada and became fascinated with the story of these young women who came as picture bride. So Arrival captures this time of anticipation and hope an adventure as they began their new journey, their journey to a new country. Now, sadly, most of these picture bride stories um, are one of, of a horrific experience and a hardship, and there is um, more that happens. But the actual installation, oops, sorry, in my gallery, this is our little 1,000 square foot display space, what we did was a contemporary um, new media installation. So on the left side, your left, is the heritage photo of a picture bride from our collection blown up larger than life 
and on the opposite side is original landscape and seascape photography by Chino Utsuka, who had not actually specialized in landscape photography before this. She is actually more of a figurative photographer through her contemporary art making. But the two, and if you notice, the striations on the rock match the rips in the photograph. And there is, unfortunately, you can't see it on the slide, but the moody atmosphere, almost a Turner-esque atmosphere in her seascape, there is a painted backdrop behind the, the picture bride. A lot of these photos were taken in formal studios. Um, so there is some element that artistically ties the two images together. But more importantly, not to get too artsy on you, is that these are projected onto eight foot tall uh, by five foot wide panels. And there were four of them. So you're only seeing half of my display. There were two more and we turned the entire space into a black box theater. What you heard when you went in there was audio narration of excerpts from original interviews done by these brides. And in, so in their own words, voiced um, snippets of their experience. So you walked in, you could sit and contemplate and be immersed in these women telling their own stories. The next example I'm going to give you is my um, winter exhibit, Hastings Park 1942, which I worked with a local theater troupe called Universal Limited. So in early 1942, over 8,000 Japanese Canadians were incarcerated at Hastings Park in East Vancouver before being sent to internment sites in the BC interior or to work camps across the country. This exhibit features a special installation, a video installation of Universal Limited's Japanese problem play. Um, and it was projected onto a recreated horse stall from the livestock building at Hastings Park where women and children were kept to produce an experiential dramatic glimpse into that tragic episode of Canada's history. So on your left is a shot of that same display space that you saw with the arrival exhibit. But now this is a horse stall, uh, you're only seeing half of it, where the video uh, of the live performance is projected. There is a photo from my exhibit that shows what those horse stalls actually look like at Hastings Park. And you can see that the where the women and children were kept, they used their own bed sheets to provide some modicum of privacy between the um, sleeping areas. The covered white forms in my gallery are actual bales of hay. Thanks to the Burnaby Village Museum, we were able to archivally treat them and have them safely in my gallery. So we created this, um, not an authentic reproduction, but a lived experience where you could experience the, the story as it was told by this theater troupe, which was an interesting play in and of itself. We had the troupe come and perform live on um, six occasions, and they actually move you around the set. Um, taking an even further break from traditional uh, exhibitry, we held the opening on September 30th because that was the anniversary of the last day that Nikkei were allowed to remain in Vancouver. We invited attendees to see the performance live within the actual horse stalls of the livestock building, which is a building that is relatively unchanged from 75 years ago, except that today it has modern plumbing. You can see in the photo those troughs water was flowing, that's where the, the uh, livestock basically were served their slop. That became the washroom during the time that um, 
My community was detained there. And uh, it was, a, so September 30th, if you remember, if you were in town last September 30th, it was a chilly, gray, bleak, miserable day. The peony had recently ended and the stalls were freshly anointed with eau de vache. And it was a perfect, perfect day for this event, where which it was a creative inter intervention to give the audience a brief experiential look into the past. So that was Hastings Park 1942. And actually, the theater troupe has continued to travel the performance part of this. They were just recently in Nanaimo doing a series of performances. Victoria, before that, there is talk of traveling it across Canada. It's the performance itself with the um, horse stall set is quite mobile. So if you're interested in having it out at UBC, it's something that we could definitely talk to the theater troupe about. Um, oh, here's some more shots of the actual installation. So we recreated, we created a sculpture of those registration cards I mentioned to you, the different colors. There's the three different colors on a Hastings Park uh, blanket. These were blankets that were actually issued to um, the detainees as they arrived. And then behind that white um, sheet on your far left, we created a little learning nook, a little reading nook, where you could watch actual documentaries or interviews and uh, also we had an activity corner where we asked the question what does home mean to you and we invited um, students and families and participants to answer and then we hung it up on the do you see back there there's a little laundry line uh, which was a little interactive activity throughout the exhibit so my current exhibit, Beta Vulgaris, The Sugar Beet Projects, with Kelty McKinnon and Carrie Latimer, is on now. And I welcome all of you to come visit before the end of May. During the Second World War, the labor shortage, lack of secure cargo shopping, sh shopping, shipping, and the need to supply troops overseas with sugar resulted in the BC Securities Commission Council organizing the Sugar Beet Projects. As part of their internment, Japanese-Canadian families were allowed to remain together only if they agreed to move to the prairies or Ontario to work the sugar beet fields. And it's interesting to note that the forced labor of Japanese Canadians supplied support for 65% of Alberta's sugar beet acreage during the war. So this is what you will see if you come to my gallery now. Kelty McKinnon is a landscape architect by profession, and she has recreated a Japanese Zen garden in the majority of my space, inspired by Ryoanji in Kyoto, but made entirely instead of sand. That's all sugar that you see there. And she's created the topography of the Rocky Mountains on the left and the flats of the sugar beet fields on the right. And those boulders are molten sugar sculptures. What you see in front is a formal platform that um, the tea setup is not there as part of my regular exhibit. That was actually there just for the opening. We had special Chanoyu tea ceremony performed, and we will have another event like that coming up in early March. So you are welcome to attend that. We do require tickets for the tea only because there's limited access in that space. And in the back is the facade of a corner of a tar paper shack. So a lot of the families who 
lived on these farms were housed um, not in internment shacks but in chicken coops, which were then papered over in tar just to provide some sort of installation. Insulation, And if you walk in there, again, it's a little reading nook, a little space where you can learn more about the actual history and heritage because this is a very conceptual art installation. Uh, the added caveat, which you can't tell by this slide, is this gorgeous soundscape created by Juno Award-winning Carrie Latimer, who is Kelty McKinnon's cousin. And she not only composed and performed the music, but she created, a, she made, a handmade koto, which is a Japanese harp, out of um, objects that she, so she sequestered herself away in her home for one weekend and gave herself the goal of creating a Japanese musical instrument out of only things she could find in her home. Now, she's a Juno award-winning musician. She's a professional performer, so she obviously has more musically inspired supplies than perhaps some of us who are not would have. But, um, so, we transformed the, the dry garden using sugar. Um, I'm going to show you a, that's the tea ceremony that's happening during our opening. There's Carrie on her handmade koto. And we also served wagashi in the form of beets during our opening. There's a wagashi workshop coming up too at the museum where you can learn to make those. Uh, but back here, just to explain a bit more, the boardwalk traverses over top to um, conflate the hills of Mission. And um, yeah, the flat striated furrows of the sugar beet fields, so the hills of Mission, sorry, on the left, and the sugar beet fields of southern Alberta. The reason I was saying the Rockies is that there is fleeting video showing on both sides and uh, projected onto the surfaces. So Kelty and Carrie took a road trip after we confirmed this exhibit, and they started in Vancouver, went to Hastings Park, drove the route that our uh, elders would have had to have taken through the internment camps to the prairies and to their family who still has a farm, a sugar beet, or a farm in southern Alberta, which was a sugar beet farm at that time. And they filmed it all. And that's the film that you see projected onto your far left. And um, on the right is footage that Kelty shot while in southern Alberta of the ground, of traveling over the, so you, it's actually the, the earth of the sugar beet fields. I don't know if you can see it, but on the far side of the tar paper shack, do you see little shelves? And there's actually little sugar lozenges. They are molds, like 3D sculpture, of the topography of all the, the land, including the trip through the internment camps and also of the farms, both in Mission and in Southern Alberta. So there's lots of layers of historical information interspersed and um, explained in a very contemporary art way. So lots to engage in, and that soundscape plays throughout the entire gallery for the duration. At the opening, Carrie came and performed live. When we have our next tea ceremony event, she'll be back. She's also teaching a Sunday Family Corner uh, workshop to make Japanese instruments, so keep an eye for that. Okay, so those are the three examples of exhibits. and. Um, the other thing we do, other than public-facing exhibits, are publications, books on our 
exhibits and on our history. So 2017 was the 75th anniversary of Japanese-Canadian tournament, which gave us momentum to publish beyond exhibit um, catalogs and gallery handouts. So the first one, and actually I've got examples of these books on the table that you passed as you came in that you're welcome to take a look at. We also have them available in our museum gift shop. The Tree Trunk Can Be My Pillow is produced by um, my museum and it was published by the University of Victoria. And here's an excerpt by Trevor Woodman, who's one of my RAs on the Landscapes of Injustice Project, who wrote the um, author's credit on the back for me because Jack Tadashi Kagetsu is deceased. He was the youngest son of Eikichi Kagetsu, who by all reports was the logging baron of Vancouver, of BC, before internment ripped everything away from him. So uh, Jack was the youngest son of prominent Nikkei timber industrialist Eikichi Kagetsu. And this book does detail the fascinating life and accomplishments. One uh, really interesting thing is the name, Kagetsu did not exist before seven generations ago when the first um, Kagetsu was able to choose his own name. He was a court performer. He was an artist in the courts. And his daimyo at the time so loved him that as a reward, he gave him the right to choose his own name, and he selected Kagetsu. So Bumon Kagetsu is the very first, and then all the descendants from there um, are related to this artist. The descendancy chart is at the back of the book, if you're curious. The, um, uh, the next book is um, Changing Tides, The Vanishing Voices of Nikkei Fishermen, and that book is also at the back. And this was actually a community collaborative effort. The Japanese-Canadian Fishermen's Committee had produced a couple of other oral history books, but they didn't feel they had a definitive story of stories of the families. So this is their final um, book that we helped produce. And it talks about families on the BC coast from before the Second World War to present day. And it is definitely stories of hardship, determination, and triumph against social injustice, discrimination, and definitely is about resilience and um, perseverance. And my um, last book that I'm going to talk about, Departures Chronicling the Expulsion of Japanese Canadians from the West Coast of 1942 to 1949. This is a uh, realization of a dream that the editor of the Bulletin magazine, which again, I've left the January, February extra copies. Please help yourself. They're at the entrance to the room. Um, John Greenaway, John Endo Greenaway, his mother, Fumiko Greenaway, had a vision to do a book that was like a roadmap book that you could take take on the road and investigate where these internment camps existed. And she wanted to pepper it with recipes and stories and photographs. They got some seed funding about 30 years ago and produced a mock-up, which is about as far as that project was able to go. And um, when I became director curator in 2015, John and I sat down and looked at his mom's little square mock-up. And I said, this should be a, a bigger book. 
My research archivist, Linda Kalmoto-Reed, and my predecessor, Beth Carter, had in the meantime produced two bus tour guides. We, the museum hosts an internment camp bus tour every other year. It's called Karizumai. And it really shows maps and shows, uh, again, it's like taking Fumiko Greenaway's concept but putting it more in a travel guide. With this, we were able to mash both concepts but then really flesh it out with um, archival photos, memories of survivors, recipes, artifacts. We included poetry and then also wove in voices of the third and fourth Sansei and Yonsei generations echoing that the years do continue to resonate long after the last camp was closed. So that's also at the back. And okay, quickly. I'm over time, but can I go for like 10 more minutes? <laughs> because I want to tell you about our um, academic projects that we are partnered on through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. So 2012 to 2014, uh, with, with um, Drs. Jeff Masuda and Dr. Audrey Kobayashi and um, Aaron, sorry Aaron, I, your last name is escaping me right now, but Revitalizing Japantown and the Right to Remain looked at the waves of dis dispossession in the downtown east side, what was originally euphemistically called Japantown. And in 2014 to 2016, we weren't a formal partner, but we were a community partner on Dr. John Price and his colleagues, Asian Canadians on Vancouver Island. And the biggest single project that I am directly involved in is the 2014 to 2020 Landscapes of Injustice. So this is the actual public output, the exhibit that was curated at the end of Revitalizing Japantown. It's kind of a warp shot because this is a panoramic view, but what it shows you is a replication of um, an SRO. We engaged the age of dozens of artists for being our spokespeople for four key rights that were identified by this project. We recreated the footprint of an SRO, a single room occupancy um, in the middle, but it was conceptual, just boxes. And what you're seeing projected inside is a 360 degree surround video of an actual SRO today in the King's Room, which if you walked into that space, rotated on that one wall, but if you had data on your phone, you could download the URL. And if you spun around in that space, the image spun around with you. This is a banner display similar to my Gamangiri Gambare banners out in the foyer that were part of Dr. John Price and his colleagues' um, ACFI project. This is actually a shot from back to Tomekichi Homa. Remember I told you about him? He has been officially recognized by Parts Canada with a commemorative plaque, which is going to live in the law building here. And this is the art exhibit that um, I contributed to that was on display during December for the actual formal unveiling of the plaque, and we left it up um, until we closed for the holidays. So the Landscapes of Injustice project, during the 1940s, Canada enacted mass displacement and dispossession of people on racial grounds, a collective moral failure that remains only partially addressed. We lost our homes, farms, businesses, as well as personal, family, and communal 
possessions. And the project is dedicated to recovering and grappling with this difficult past. So this is just a snapshot of the landing page of the website, landscapesofinjustice.com. And you can probably barely see it, but it just gives you the scope and scale of all the various areas of research and um, investigation. Now, I am moving into the museum exhibits cluster for LOI. I'm partnered with the Royal BC Museum. I just wanted to give you a snapshot of what I'm facing. The image on the right is my entire gallery space, which you'll probably recognize from those earlier exhibits. It's about a thousand square feet. That's actually our Ryoshi Fisherman's exhibit that Beth Carter curated back in 2012. On the left-hand side is the um, entry to the heritage exhibit that's the permanent exhibit at the Royal BC Museum. Footprint this way is pretty much the same. They have double my ceiling height. Um, that's just to give you scope and scale of our museum versus the Royal BC Museum. We are ex curating a traveling exhibit about 2,000 square feet that will start at the Nikkei National Museum in 2000, travel through Canada. It's going to go to Pier 21 first, and then hoping to go to other museums in between. It will definitely be at the JCCC in Toronto, and then it will end up at the Royal BC Museum in uh, late 2021, early 2022. It will then live with us as a potential traveling exhibit that can continue going on long after this project is finished. Um, Lastly, though, through Landscapes of Injustice, there have been other projects that have already spun off of it. This is um, showing you a letter that was part of a big file that we were able to review. Now, protest letters written by the Japanese-Canadian community have been um, included in very amazing writings by Roy Miki, Muriel Kitagawa, but this particular file of 300 protest letters with the BC Securities Commission has never been investigated to this degree. And what it is, is um, written by individuals from, this is after they're already in internment, so from the camps and beyond. There are letters that go right up to 1949 in this folder. And so our community was not allowed back even though the war ended in 1945. In 46, we had to move either further east or go to Japan of which 4,000 did, and 2,000 of those were born in Canada. But these letters have inspired, I'm not going to read that because I think you're reading that while I'm speaking, but these letters have inspired a Virtual Museum of Canada website project that we're calling Writing Wrongs. And with this project, I'm partnered on uh, through the Royal BC Museum, NGX Interactive, and Suzanne Tabata Productions. And our, um, we're in the interpretive plan phase right now. We are launching uh, next spring and by June, July at the latest. But this will be available through the Virtual Museum of Canada website. We actually do have two other exhibits already on the Virtual Museum of Canada website. If you look it up now, Our Mother's Patterns that talk about the um, women's history, basically, in our, our uh, community. And then the Asahi, our famous Vancouver Asahi baseball players. These two are already up, but they're about a decade old, and they are smaller community projects, whereas the Writing Wrongs is a significant quarter of a million dollar investment project through VMC. 
We have other online offerings. Witness to Loss, uh, the diary of Kishizo Kimura, is actually where landscapes all started. Dr. Jordan Stanger Ross was researching this book, came to the Nikkei National Museum, and that's what started everything going. So um, the, let me just see if I have, yeah. So Witness to Loss is, Along with every other Japanese-Canadian, Kishizo Kimura saw his life upended by events that began in 1941. His experience and the tumultuous decade that followed his uprooting and internment, his loss of personal property and livelihood, his effort to forge a new life um, afterwards, is shared with tens of thousands of others from our community. But his story is also unique. As a member of two controversial committees, he oversaw the forced sale of property. He participated in the dispossession of his own community. And in January 1942, he assisted officials disposing of Japanese-Canadian-owned fishing vessels. So this is a website that actually um, has provides the digitized version of his diary in the original Japanese language and the English transcript, um, as well as um, some oral histories, photo essay, you can, this is just a snapshot of the landing page. This is witness2loss.ca that you can access. And then these are other heritage sites that we've produced. So Hastings Park, about that um, history behind the exhibit that I produced. So the website actually came first, and then that exhibit that I showed you came later. So that's HastingsPark1942.ca. I talked about the soldiers fighting in World War I. We've got Warrior Spirit, 1916.ca and also Tashmi, which was the largest internment camp uh, outside of Vancouver, like just at that 100-mile zone. We're going to be starting some Tashmi day trips um, shuttles from the museum this summer, which will start at the Nikkei National Museum, go to Hastings Park, go to Tashmi, where our friend Ryan Allen, who now owns the Sunshine Valley RV camp, which is where Tashmi was, uh, has created a small Tashmi Museum and Interpretive Center. He's actually currently building a two-scale internment shack and will include that as a stop and then back to Vancouver. So it'll be a chance for people to have um, a lived experience. So we are at 1.15 and I do want to leave some time for questions. Here are some links. I'm going to be sharing my PowerPoint with um, with the re people who are recording. So you'll have access to all of this. I know it's really hard to read all that small writing on here, but there's a ton of resources. We are a uh, public space facing cultural museum, but we are also an active research center. So we've got an amazing archive. Linda Kawamoto Reed, our research archivist, and Lisa Ueda, our collections manager, are two incredible sources of contact for us. Should you have any research of your own that you need to do, we're open. Um, daily except for Monday. Although for research, I would say please try and keep it between Tuesday and Saturday when we have our um, professionals on staff. And um, we do require appointments just because we're small and need to keep up with our volume. But we welcome any research requests. And please access our website. And we have a searchable database, which is nikkeimuseum.org. And um, that actually hubs in Toronto's collection at the JCCC and the new Denver Interment Memorial Site collection also because we, we look after the um, professional management of all of that. Here's just some photo credits and links to our exhibits that I talked about. Um, just quickly, that Writing Wrongs 
project that I'm working on right now. This is just a breakdown of the structure that we're hoping to, to cover. We're going to cover the, we have to put those letters in context. We just can't create a website out of the letters in a vacuum, so we're contextualizing them. And then uh, at the end, we're actually going to bring it into contemporary times with interviews with um, newcomers and refugees. So the last thing, and this is the very end, is my next project after Beta Vulgaris is the Suitcase Project. And I'm mentoring a young curatorial assistant through the BC Arts Council Early Career um, Fund. And she, that's a self-portrait of her, um, giving an example of what these photos are going to look like. She's actually exploring the narrative of how our community had to pack everything up within 24 to 48 hours notice and leave for parts unknown, not knowing how long they were going to be gone for or when they would return. This happened in the States as well as Canada. So she actually is um, shooting subjects in both uh, Washington and BC and working with a videographer who is taking stop-motion videos of the packing process and a new music friend who is creating a soundscape for us. And this will be launching at my museum on June 13, but we're hoping to have a lot of different interactive programming around it. We're just planning programming now, so if anyone in the room has some great ideas they'd like to talk to me about before we actually nail our collateral material, uh, the next uh, few weeks are the time to do it. So thank you all for um, listening to all of this. And we've got about 10 minutes for questions. Well, thank you, Sherry, for uh, sharing some of your efforts to document and also publicize uh, this history and then all the uh, fascinating discussion of all the interactive exhibits that you're doing at the uh, any questions? Yeah, Eric. So I feel like it, maybe it's a little late in the timeline, but there was like lots of Chinese migration to us on the railroad. Was there any sort of similar Japanese migration for like specific maybe so the Chinese immigration story of which Dr. Henry Yu could elucidate more than I can, but what I know of it is the Chinese were under harsher conditions here from the early times. They were really brought in as indentured labor right from the get-go. Um, and there were severe restrictions on their immigration, whereas the Japanese immigrants were here of their own free will and volition, coming to a land of opportunity. And you have to remember at that time, Japan was allied with England. And I showed you the Japanese Consul General's house, 1889. They had early protection from the Japanese government. The Canadian government tried to levy, you know about the Chinese head tax? that existed. Uh, they tried to levy that on, or they, they tried to include the Japanese because all Asians look alike and they wanted to just uh, put that across the board. But the consul general at the time um, fought with the local government and um, because of that alliance basically saved the Japanese Canadian immigrants from having to face that um, at, the, at that point. So in the early days of immigration, at a certain level, the Japanese immigrants had a bit more protection, but they certainly weren't immune to the rampant racism that was um, limiting a lot of opportunity, including voting, the right to own property, all of that um, in the early days. Oh, and then actually though, further to your question, yes, the Japanese were indentured labor during the war years in the Second World War in the sugar beet projects and in road camps. In fact, the um, highway that connects 
east coast to west coast, the highway projects, the first people that were rounded up were able-bodied men and they were immediately shipped off to work on the, the road, the, the highway camps, the road camps. Thank you. Yes. So look up Warrior Spirit 1916.ca and there are first-person accounts. Also, my research archivist that I told you about, Linda Kawamoto-Reed, is president of the Japanese-Canadian War Memorial Committee. We host the um, November 11 day um, ceremony in Stanley Park. I don't know if you know, but there is a Japanese-Canadian cenotaph in Stanley Park, and every November 11 we hold a ceremony there. It's beautiful. Like, come on out. We do it every time. But she is also a rich resource of, of information on anything to do with Canadian veterans. You have some really interesting ways of engaging the public. I'm just wondering what's the process for like developing the exhibition ideas and presentation? That's a big question. <laughs> So we do have a mandate to cover historical, cultural, and contemporary issues. And I come from a contemporary fine art background. So um, everything you see in the last, ever since 2015, <laughs> interjects a real contemporary flair because that's my personal biases and experience. But I also feel that it's a way to really engage um, people who might just have this preconceived notion that history is boring or that museums are dull. But the process is multiple, there's different, different layers. Some of it is luck and timing, to be perfectly honest. Um, for example, the Hastings Park exhibit. Oh, by the way, museums curate and, and plan exhibits at least two or three years in advance. So um, when I first came on board in 2015, I already had my plan through to 2018, even 2019, drafted out. And um, even in 2015, I already had committed to a guest curator for my interment anniversary show. But through um, some personal issues that she had and some timing that couldn't be helped, she had to pull out a year out. So then I was left with, okay, no guest curator, uh, the reason I wasn't doing it myself is I was a guest curator in 2012 for the 70th anniversary internment show and I had curated a contemporary art exhibit at the time and I felt I'd already done it. So I really wanted to engage a different form of experience and coincidentally, going back to 2015, Yoshie Bancroft, the lead actress on that Universal Theatre group, had come to me, uh, Cole called me, I didn't know her then to write a support letter for a grant. She was applying to the NHAC, the National Association of Japanese Canadians, a creative development grant. And in it was her Japanese problem play that she was trying to flesh out, an in-situ performative experience of life in the livestock building at Hastings Park from the female perspective, was her original. It did expand out from there. It retained the livestock building. And I was fascinated, even back then, and I knew, even though I had already committed to a curator, that I wanted her to be a part of programming. When my exhibit blew up, 
I called her up and I said, so did you get that grant? And, uh, you know, where are we going with this? And they had, and they were fleshing it out. So I met with her and Joanna, her uh, production partner, and in very short shrift, we, um, oh, and plus, the website already existed, thanks to the Hastings Park Heritage Committee that Hastings Park 1942 website, which had been developed over the previous five years. Normally, you do an exhibit, and then you do the website. Just like Warrior Spirit was an exhibit in my gallery that I curated, and then I created the website. Kishizo Kimura is a book that exists, and then we did the website. Hastings Park was a website that existed, and I created an exhibit um, through that, beyond that, but with this component of live performance. So that's how that happened. Moving forward to the Landscapes of Injustice exhibit, that is a tr significant traveling exhibit with a six-figure budget, which I don't even have for, for a whole year of exhibits at my space. Um, we are doing, so the more formal process is you do community consultation, uh, what's called design jams. We just had our third one, uh, second one, on uh, Saturday and um, you get a lot of input mostly on visitor experience and key messaging. You develop all of that and then you also um, simultaneously look at, especially if it's a research-based project like my Revitalizing Japantown, you look at all the research, you glean from all the academics who, are, who have lived with this experience, a lot of consultation on a lot of layers, a lot of input. Uh, it depends on whether there's artists involved. With Revitalizing Japantown, we did engage downtown Eastside artists and had a lot of workshopping sessions with them and collaborative sessions. With LOI, we're going to be um, bringing everything to the Spring Institute that happens in April in terms of our design jam and early consultative findings. We're hoping to get all the high-level research results by then and then it's the curatorial team's task to put that all together in a traveling exhibit. So then it will go to fabrication with the RBCM, which requires a year because they have to slot us in in between their ORCA exhibit that they're developing right now. And then we need to shop it out to all the institutions that we're hoping will pick it up while we're still building it. Um, and in the meantime, concurrently, promotional material, any publications, any papers, any education resources are developed. And that's kind of the two extremes of how all of this happens. Confused yet? Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like a really great way to engage the public, and it's interesting to see you doing this work. Thank you. Well, public engagement is definitely at the forefront of museology now. And museums are being very criticized for the colonial roots. And you know, if, has anyone seen the Black Panther? It opens up by pretty much dissing all historical museology. So, you know, but you know, we are we are really trying to break that colonial mold. And I have a lot more fluidity and flexibility being a very small, the upside of being a small contemporary, uh, sorry, culturally based, community-based institution and not provincially owned or federally owned is that I have a lot more fluidity and flexibility with what I can do. So I can do things just because I want to. Um, I mean, with, with obviously not everything I want to, but you know, I, I, I don't have to wait through layers and layers of bureaucratic approval or, but at, the downside is I'm also completely, we are completely self-funded. So we have to do things based on grants and donations and the kindness of everyone's hearts. So please come, come see, come see what we're doing.
effective or out of all the projects you've been doing, you've, you've got a range of projects that are including something. I just wondered, like, you know, you probably reassess as yeah. you go, and I'm yeah. just curious to see what you think like made a lot of impact or reach people sort of beyond the usual mm -hmm. Well, it's a really good question. I actually love all of them. I love all the ones that I showed you. And what I didn't show you was one that I guess curated on that predates the first one that I showed you. It was called Magic Hour. And I worked with my friends at the Instant Coffee Collective. I was the museum assistant at the time. And I worked with my friends at the um, Instant Coffee Collective to look at our archive and reinterpret it in contemporary ways. What they did, you know where that sugar garden is? They built a skateboarding platform. And we didn't allow skateboarding only because we don't have the ceiling height for it uh, once you have a skateboarding platform in. But it really introduced this performative aspect for the first time. And it was fantastic. So not that I, com I didn't commission Japanese Problem, but I had already had the experience of working with live performers and musicians and people in our space, reinterpreting history. And what's more um, dusty and, and drab to lay people than artifacts? Although I have to tell you, the best performances was when we brought the Hollinger boxes out, made everyone wear white gloves, and had everyone unwrap the artifacts and observe it in proper preservation standards. They loved it. I think we should have more opportunities where people can get behind the scenes of museums. Sorry, I'm a museum geek, so I get really excited about this kind of stuff. But anyway, so that was my first um, Holy Hum. Have you heard them? They're an electronic local band. They're fantastic. They performed live in my space at that time. And um, so I knew that public, interactive, multimedia, multidisciplinary um, interpretations were really engaging. And they didn't have to be weird. They didn't have to be scary. Um, so that's just something that I try and interject. But it really just depends on the subject matter, the people who uh, are available to work with. And everything we do is quite collaborative and artistically as well as from a research perspective. I just want to thank you for sharing the wonderful you know, vision of the future. And my dear Kumiko, I'm sure she used to say in the 90s, early 90s, when people are ready to want more information, we have to be ready. And I'm sure Kumiko was so happy. Oh, wonderful. All those uh, pioneer people. Fumiko Greenaway, who Departure's book is dedicated to. Thank you. I never had the opportunity to meet her, but I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, I think that's a perfect way to Thank you.